Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Cushman is a leading national pioneer in the integration of mindfulness, embodied meditation, and creative expression. She is the author of the memoir, The Mama Sutra, the novel, Enlightenment for Idiots, and the mindful yoga guide, Moving into Meditation. Her essays on spiritual practice and daily life have been widely published. She is a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and mentors meditation students and writers worldwide. She leads regular meditation retreats with a focus on creativity, embodiment, and daily life practice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Anne Cushman about her new book, The Mama Sutra. Welcome to the show, Anne. Hi, Elizabeth. It's great to be talking with you. Hi, glad you could be here. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us how you became interested in yoga and meditation. Well, my interest in yoga and meditation actually began decades ago. It was when I was a sophomore in college, and I had signed up for a class that was called The Self and World Religions. And I picked it for the profound reason that it did not meet too early in the morning and also because it had gotten rave reviews in the student course guide. Everybody said the professor was astonishing and brilliant and deep and interesting. So I went to that class, really not knowing what I was getting into, and was immediately captivated. It felt that the subject matter was addressing all of the questions that, as a 19-year-old, I was pondering and discussing with my friends about who are we really? And what's the purpose of this life? And um, what is our true nature beyond what the mundane activities of our daily life? And so I was especially interested in the segments on Hinduism and Buddhism and yoga and meditation. And at the end of that class, I actually signed up to be a major in comparative religion. I had previously been thinking I would 
study creative writing or possibly East Asian studies and really shifted my whole focus of study into these questions of meaning and how to live a really full and alive human life. Could you say a little more about your training and the experiences you've had in pursuing your interest? Well, I actually began while I was in college. Um, I, of course, was reading about meditation in my classes on Eastern religions, and I noticed that the main thing that they said is that you couldn't learn about it in books. And so I began seeking out places to actually practice, and I visited first the Zen Center of New York, then went out to the Zen Center of Los Angeles to make a documentary about Zen for my senior thesis. And then um, after graduation, really made my way west and began studying first beginning with Zen Buddhism and then moving fairly quickly into yoga, um, yoga asana and, and pranayama, the postures and breathing practices, because I found those to be such a tremendous support to the practice of meditation. And I trained as a yoga teacher in a couple of different traditions. I studied meditation in, first in the Zen tradition, then the Vietnamese Zen tradition with Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. I began studying insight meditation and mindfulness with Jack Cornfield and the other teachers at Spirit Rock Meditation Center out in California. And meanwhile, I was also writing about all of this because I became an editor at a magazine called Yoga Journal back in 1990 and was an editor there throughout the 90s and then became an editor and writer for a Buddhist magazine called Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, and was writing for them as well. So my writing and my exploration of these practices really went together all along. Yeah. So let's turn to the book now, because you have you have combined writing and your practice of yoga and meditation for a long time. And the book itself has a unique and interesting history. Would you share a little bit about that? Well, I first began thinking about this book and actually taking notes for this book when I became pregnant. Um, at that point, I had already been a practitioner, practitioner of yoga and meditation for many years, and I had also been a writer and specifically a travel writer. I had just finished a book called From Here to Nirvana, which was a book about the yoga centers and meditation centers in India. And it really struck me that I was embarking on a kind of journey a spiritual journey or pilgrimage, and that in becoming a mother, that I was going to be, just as I had with my spiritual explorations, my meditative explorations, and my travels, I was going to be moving into unknown territory. And one of the ways that I focus my attention on anything that I'm doing is to write about it. And also, sharing about my practices has always been part of my journey. So I thought, well, I'll just start taking notes on pregnancy and motherhood, and maybe I'll, I'll come out with a book in a couple of years. Well, that was over 20 years ago, and 
I took notes throughout all the ups and downs of that journey. I tried a couple of times to complete the book, and then it always felt like a whole new chapter was opening up or something happened that radically shifted the story that I thought I was telling. And so uh, it really was not until the last couple of years that I really had the sense of momentum to be able to tie off this particular aspect of the story, the story of motherhood as a spiritual practice. And really, uh, the book came out I finished the the manuscript and sent it off right as my son was preparing to go off to college. So it was really through the whole long arc of my journey that I was writing it. So you sort of launched your son and launched the book. <laughs> Lovely. So one of the things about the book that I really liked was you you really grapple with whether or not your yoga practice and meditation somehow can inoculate you or anesthetize you from the challenges or difficulties in life. And, and I like how you're in your writing, you were saying you're really trying to share with your readers, um, what you learned through your own personal experience. Can you say a little more about that? Because I think people, um, you know, start meditation for different reasons. And I do think there is a sense that it has a magical ability to, you know, make us so Zen-like that nothing bothers us. Exactly. And I think that is part of the way that sometimes meditation practice, mindfulness practice gets sold, or that it gets misinterpreted, that people imagine that if you do these practices, first of all, there can be this almost magical thinking belief that if I do this, nothing bad will ever happen. And on a more subtle level, the belief that if I do this, I will somehow become transformed into this person who never makes mistakes, never gets angry, never gets stressed out, never gets into an argument, um, that I will become, as a parent, this perfect tranquil, continually present, uh, perfect mother or perfect father. And that's really not the point of our practice. But I think it's easy to fall into that trap of thinking, A, that that will happen, and B, that if it doesn't happen, that we're practicing incorrectly. And so that there can be a kind of meditation shame that starts to result. And so what I really wanted to show in the book is that our practice includes our full humanity and that part of what we're doing as we come into a meditation practice is that we're learning to open our hearts to the full range of our human experience. And that, of course, includes beautiful, calm, tranquil moments but it also includes the moments where we're really falling apart, where we're losing it, where things aren't going the way that we thought that they would. And the ability to make room in our hearts for that and to increase our ability to respond wisely to those circumstances rather than blindly re reacting is more what the gift of a mindfulness practice or a true yoga practice can be. 
And another aspect of your book that I liked was your, how candid you were in sharing moments when you didn't feel like you were handling something uh, well, and how you talk a little bit about that's part of the process too, of being open-hearted. Yes, I think that, you know, especially as a parent, we can compare ourselves to this imaginary ideal, and we can get um, very discouraged about uh, our own humanity in relation to this journey. So I really wanted to give the details about things falling apart. You know, what's it really like when you have a child who is, for instance, a fussy, colicky baby? I had this idea that because I was a longtime yoga practitioner and because I was practicing attachment parenting and because I was a meditator, that of course I would have one of these tranquil Buddha-like babies who never cried and you could take them anywhere and they slept through the night the three days after they came home from the hospital or three days after they were born at home um, in this magical home birth, you know, again, where nothing went wrong. And I really wanted to include my experiences of things not working out quite in that way. And so, yes, I, I talk about how my son was a very, what they call a high need infant. And my shelves quickly filled up with books with titles like The Fussy Baby Book or Sleep Magic. And uh, I really struggled with that, with those sleepless nights and those days of crying. And I um, really went through some challenges when he was a toddler and preschooler, when he was diagnosed with some uh, developmental differences that were very challenging throughout those years. And I wanted to be really open about that because it's so easy to compare ourselves to a myth of perfection. Yes. And in that way, I think you really address how parenting, the challenges of parenting and the, the practice or the challenges of maintaining a practice offer similar challenges and opportunities to people. And there, are, there are moments in the book where you talk about, oh, I guess this is, this is where my attention needs to be now. Yes, well, I think one of the things that yoga and meditation share with parenting is that they invite us, or in some cases, really plunge us right into the heart of what it means to be human, what it means to have a human body and a human heart and a human mind, and both the joys of that and the incredible mystery. I mean, as a parent, you're plugged right into this witnessing of the beginning of life and the development of a human being. And they also plunge us right into the sticky moments, the moments where our expectations of ourselves and others collide with what's actually unfolding. And the tricky terrain of negotiating uh, family relationships and a relationship with a child, a relationship with a partner or co-parent. And they really ask us to stay alive through these moments. And so yoga and meditation give tools to support uh, this, this intimate contact with our experience and a kind of sensitivity 
to an increasing wisdom around how can we respond to this experience in a way that's authentic, in a way that's kind, in a way that's inclusive, uh, and also how can we really forgive ourselves and pick ourselves up and begin again when we fall down in those attempts, which we will do both in our practice and our parenting again and again and again. Yes. So one of the other things that I liked was your ability to talk about moments when things are kind of falling apart and things aren't going as we expect. And it becomes challenging to use the tools of yoga or meditation because say, for example, after the birth of your son, lack of time, sleep deprivation and all of that. And I thought you did a nice job of sort of sorting that out in the, in the book. Could you say a little bit more about that? I think a lot of people find that when you need the tools the most, it gets hard then to put the time aside or make the time. Yes, that's true. And I think I was fortunate in that I had many years of a very solid practice that was really woven into the texture of my life when I became a parent. And even with that, I was radically challenged, especially in those first months, because all of the systems that I'd worked out in order to maintain a formal practice, which then could in turn infuse itself into my life, all of that had been shattered, right? I had this very, I had my routine down, getting up early, meditating and doing yoga, having a silent meditative breakfast before I moved into my quiet morning of writing or editing or teaching whatever I was doing. And of course, having an infant just shatters all of those routines. You are moving at a very different rhythm. And so the challenge is how not to cling rigidly to some idea of what a practice looks like, but let a practice evolve with your life and to look realistically at where does it fit in? You know, that for me, for instance, with an infant, it's all right. I'm not doing formal sitting meditation on my cushion as much as I was, but I'm sitting and breastfeeding a baby. And can this be a moment in which I come back to myself? Or can be can those moments of pacing up and down with a, a crying infant in the middle of the night, can that be a kind of walking meditation? What are the things that I can use to remind me to come back? And then also, where can I carve out those brief moments? It's like, all right, maybe yoga, maybe meditation doesn't look like a half hour of silence, but can I find three minutes somewhere where I can pause, where I can open my senses where I can come back to my breath and feel myself sitting on the earth and just reorient myself a little bit. So to be adaptable in the practice, to not have huge expectations and to really let go of that it looks a particular way because many of these forms were evolved over centuries primarily by monastic males. And so how do we translate that into our lives as as practitioners in the world as parents as people who are involved in relationships as mothers who are becoming pregnant or giving birth what does the practice look like here that's what i'm really interested in 
I, I like that about adaptability and how the, the form of something may need to change over time. Um, and I think that goes well with what you wrote about your son as well, how initially um, his learning differences were seen as one way, but over time, there, you know, the perception and the understanding changes. And I think there's a way by, by, by being flexible and adaptable, we can make, make space for people to change or make space for our perceptions to change. Yes, and I think that's one of the really powerful teachings of these traditions of mindfulness, yoga, and meditation is the central truth that everything is always changing and that how we interact with that ever-changing flow can really um, can really transform the way we're living our life, and it can also transform the way we relate to things that we might have thought were fixed, like the nature of who we are or the way people are defining who our child is. I think especially with children where it's so obvious how much they're changing moment to moment, day to day, that it would be really sad to get locked into a fixed view. So for instance, the story that you're talking about in the book is the story that I tell of how when my son was three, based on some behavioral patterns, he was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And um, they said that they believed that he had Asperger's syndrome. And rather than taking that as a fixed diagnosis, I took it as information about a collection of patterns and strengths and weaknesses, which I viewed as fluid and, um, and also which were similar to the patterns that we all have in that we all have strengths and weaknesses that are intimately tied together with one another. And so how do you take a characteristic like in his case, sensory sensitivity, and minimize the downside of it through, he did occupational therapy, he did sensory integration practices, while also continuing to celebrate and cultivate the strengths of it. Keen musical ear, um, a a very uh, sophisticated tuning to what was in his sensory environment. And so... um, And so these teachings of yoga and meditation really, I think, supported me during that time to really perceive him as a fluid being and not get locked around a particular diagnosis. And sure enough, after a few years in his particular case, they came back and did more testing after, you know, a number of different kinds of interventions that we'd done and said, oh, no, we don't believe that he is on the spectrum. Um, He's outgrown that diagnosis, and we now believe he's gifted. And so now you have a whole new set of strengths and weaknesses and concerns and a different set of information that you're working with. So I felt that my yoga and meditation practice was really helpful to me through that journey because for so long I had been tuned to just noticing what's true without layering a definition or a um, 
a fixed identity over that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. That just brought up in me the um, connection in between individuals as well. So you talked about, you know, we're all a collection of patterns, strengths, and weaknesses, and they're all intimately tied to each other. So too are we as individuals. And I'm just thinking if you could say something about how you and your son's father worked together to stay open-minded. You could have taken a, a diagnosis and then, you know, just saw that as uh, fixed. And I think there's something about the way that you responded that was intimately tied to the ability for him to transform and for people to see him as, as gifted. Yes. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that his dad and I really shared was um, we were both sort of eccentric people ourselves. We had never been like cookie cutter people ourselves. And we'd, over the years of being together, we had really uh, uh, celebrated that and one another and given each other a lot of space and experimented with different forms for our own relationship. And so we were really unified around our response to our son. We really, uh, we didn't want, not only did we not want to relate to him as a diagnosis, but we didn't want others to either. And so we never used the word autism or Asperger's to describe him to anybody else. Um, we did, for instance, let the school system know that he had certain kinds of learning differences, um, that he needed some help with social skills, um, that he had some sensory sensitivity, but we didn't want his teachers relating to him as a diagnosis either. And so what we did is we looked at the specific characteristics, like, all right, he needs some social skills training. How can the school system and how can these different kinds of programs that we put him in. We had him when he was three and four years old in a small social skills training group. Um, how can they strengthen his social skills? And how can we work with an occupational therapist um, so that his sensory sensitivities quiet down so that he can be, for instance, in a noisy restaurant or a classroom full of preschoolers and not be overwhelmed? And we, so we focused on the specifics, in other words, of the characteristics 
rather than fixating on the overall definition. And we gave him a lot of, I have to say, really unconditional love and celebration. Uh, both of us really enjoyed and celebrated who he was and didn't feel that he needed to be different. We felt like what we wanted to do was support him to be the best version of himself that he could possibly be. So it wasn't about changing him into somebody else. It was really about, as we would with any child, celebrating his strengths and and giving him skills to counteract his weaknesses. I like that. And I think that that approach to parenting definitely can be supported by the idea behind mindfulness and meditation where you're trying to move towards acceptance, you know, and away from like a resistance. And um, I think that's, you know, really nice. But the challenges of parenting will, I mean, as you say that you, you give him all this unconditional love and at the same time, you were able to capture moments of real frustration, real challenges. Um, you have some good stories. I don't know if you want to divulge any of them to listeners, but. Yeah. Oh, there were, there were many, there were many moments of challenge, of challenge, especially during the time period that are sometimes referred to as the terrible twos, you know, the, the regular terrible twos on, on top of, you know, compounded by his own developmental differences. So for instance, he went through a phase where he was obsessed with the spice drawer in the kitchen and his favorite thing to do. Um, he didn't want to go to the park. He didn't want to go out and play on the swings. He certainly didn't want to play with other children. He wanted to stand in the kitchen and take the caps off all the spices and smell them one at a time and identify them and and play a game where we would identify them by smell. And he could do this quite happily for way longer than I was interested in in doing this. And attempting to intervene or distract and all the normal kinds of suggestions often wouldn't work. And, you know, I describe a, a scene in the book where he wants to sit in the car and smell the cinnamon and listen to his favorite song over and over and over again. And we had a play date with another child when he was about two years old. So I finally just picked him out of the car and carried him off to the playground to play while he was screaming and kicking and weeping and shouting about how he wanted to just stay in the car and listen to Al Green and, and smell the, smell the cinnamon. And, you know, here I am, you know, trying to make him go to the playground and swing on a swing. Uh, and then the absurdity of that, you know, because of course it, it didn't work and it did not turn into a happy play date. And it ended, I think, with both of us crying for a while. Uh, so those moments I wanted to really bring into the foreground, those moments where you're at your wits end and partly just to normalize it again, just to say, because you're a meditator doesn't mean that you're always going to know the right thing to do with your child, or even that there is one right way to re respond to a situation. Uh, you're going to be at your wit's end and you're going to make mistakes. And there are going to be these moments when you're both crying. And, uh, and there are going to be those moments where you need to go back to your child and apologize and say, I'm so sorry, mommy shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so 
I wanted the the journey to include it all so that it didn't seem I think the the myth around meditation can be that it's like putting a coin into a into a slot machine or and outcome your shower of of mindfulness rewards and it just doesn't always work in that linear kind of way. Yes, and I'm I'm thinking now too of the some of the challenges that came be when you were sort of parenting alone, at least after your son's dad moved out, and some of the the challenges of of that as well. Yeah, and I do. I really get into that period of my life, which was a, a very sad and painful period of my life, and it was actually one of the reasons that it took me a long time to write the book is that I really had to digest that time period and really kind of uh, reap the learnings of it for myself before I could really write about it and really write about it from this point of transformation and love, which the whole book in a way is this story of love. And this period of time where the love that his dad and I had for each other could no longer work in the format of us being married and the heartbreak of that and the loneliness of that with a small child and our efforts to make sure that the difficulties between the two of us didn't spill over into our relationships with him and how we would actually um, sustain a, a healthy and vibrant and committed co-parenting relationship um, even when we weren't married and living together anymore was a, a huge piece of, of our and my journey. This opening to other forms of family that could be a different kind of expression of love. Yeah. What do you think was helpful in being able to, to do that? Oh, what was helpful? Um, well, practice was helpful. It, it wasn't the, the magic pill, but definitely having um, a place to go in myself and in my body and in a community which was um, which offered a kind of refuge and stability in, in the nervous system and and really helped me find my way to to a kind of love that could uh, could be durable and transformative you know yoga and meditation really helped but it didn't help in like I, I really want to stress this it didn't help in like uh, oh, I'm so Zen, I'm not sad about this kind of way. It helped in a way of like um, bringing me back over and over again to the great heart of love and compassion and also slowly and painfully in myself working through all the patterns of contraction or fear or anger that kept me from accessing that. Um, it's it's a journey. It is definitely a journey. And um, and again, just to say to anyone who's going through that, that it's so tempting to feel bad about yourself as a practitioner um, if you're having difficulties like this. 
right? I certainly went through this and I know many people who've gone through this. Like, how can I be having relationship difficulties when I'm a meditator? How can I be depressed if I'm a yoga teacher? How can I be anxious if I'm a, a practitioner of mindfulness? You know, is there such a thing as a mindful divorce? You know, the um, this illusion that somehow because we have a practice, uh, things aren't going to periodically fall apart in our life and and relationship is something that I really want to um, to dissolve. You know, dissolve that illusion. Well, also also really affirming that the practices can really be very helpful and they help get us through this, these difficult times and they help us transform and and they're very reliable and supportive. They just aren't magic bullets. Yeah, I got the feeling uh, in some of the chapters that you were able to actually just sit with and move through some of the more painful experiences because of the practice of meditation? That quality of staying with was something that, and again, I, it's so difficult to talk about these things because you don't want to sound preachy or sanctimonious, or I, and I don't want to sound like I do this perfectly, that I did it perfectly or that I do it perfectly. Um, it's an aspiration, and it definitely is an ability that strengthens over time. And so that ability that even before com- becoming a parent that I had worked on to stay with something painful or uncomfortable and not flinch away from it or squirm away from it, but to really soften into and feel into what it has to offer and what it has to to say was something that was was really helpful. And one of the things I write about in the book is the story of my daughter, because we've been speaking here about my son. But before my son was born, I actually um, had a daughter who was stillborn. She died while she was inside me just a week before her due date. And the incredible heartbreak of that and the loss of that and, you know, the depths of despair of that was something that I don't think I don't I can't imagine how I would have been able to even survive without um, without this practice of staying with and turning toward and and the practice of really being able to include loss and death um, in the capacity of of the heart um and again, I don't want to say this in any way that makes it sound like um, that this was an easy experience because of the because of the yoga and meditation, um, or that med- or that meditation made it less heartbreaking. Um, but I feel like the practices really did enable me to um, to help use the heartbreak as a gateway to love rather than as a um, as something that closed me off and hardened me, you know, as a tenderizer yes. of the heart and as a connector with, with human beings everywhere in the knowledge that all of us at some point experience heart crushing, heart shattering loss in some way or another. 
Right. Yeah, I think, I don't remember where I read this, but you talked about your story being sort of a homage to, I think this is a quote, a homage to the log threads that run through all human lives, stitching up what's shredded in our hearts. Yes. Yes. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that being a, a parent can teach us if we're really paying attention um, and if we're really opening moment by moment to it is this thread of our common humanity and this sense that our love for and aspirations for our own child are shared by every parent everywhere in some form and that the loss that we feel and the disappointment that we feel and the the vulnerability that we have loving some someone so much in a world where really anything can happen that that also is shared by not just all parents but all human beings that this is the essence of our vulnerability as as humans and of our incredible bravery and courage too that in a world where everything is impermanent that we step forward and open our hearts and love and connect is uh, is one of the real gifts of our capacity as human beings and that's another subject you kind of write about after the death of your daughter that period of you know grieving and also being willing to try again. I mean, after that major loss to open yourself up and make yourself, and you talked a lot about the vulnerability of the second pregnancy, especially as you got closer toward the end. Yes, because I think when with the second pregnancy, I was aware in a way that I hadn't been or certainly hadn't allowed myself to be in the, in the first um, of the possibility of things not working out. And I think I just hadn't entertained that possibility the first time around. I hadn't been that close to loss. And uh, and so it really wasn't. It was an act of, of courage and also of affirmation that, that, um, that love is worth it. Love is worth the vulnerability. And there's a story that I tell in, in the book about the universality of loss, one of the ways it really came home to me when I first went out to the grocery store after, you know, for the first time after the loss of my daughter. And, and of course, I was going to the, the deli counter to, to get something for dinner. And the people who'd been working behind the counter had been seeing me for months coming in, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the young man behind the counter asked me, um, he came in, he gave me a big smile and he said, where's your baby? And this was my first time out of the, uh, of the house and I was clearly not pregnant anymore. And I stopped for a moment and I said, she's dead. And I burst into tears and ran out of the store. Um, and then, of course, weeks later, when I was had, feeling a little stronger, I went back to apologize and explain to the person behind the counter, because that's a very intense thing to do. And he just looked at me and he he shook his head with tears in his eyes. And he said, oh, the same thing happened to me and my wife. 
And he said, I totally understand. There's no need to explain. So that sense of, oh, yes, this is a world in which these things happen and in which people go on and and live in their human hearts and um, and pick themselves up and, and go on. And he told me that he had had another child after that. And it was that he'd had the courage to do that was an inspiration for me as well. Yeah, that was a very powerful part of that book. Yeah, yeah it's, um, and it's the kind of thing that, um, it, of course, it's hard to talk about and hard to write about and felt really important to me to share that whole story. And part of why it did was uh, um, as a way of bringing my daughter and her short but precious life into the world and the ways in which she had touched me and her dad, allowing her story to touch others as well, and not just the loss of it, but the joy. The joy, because there's a beautiful... um, In the part of the deep dharma of the meditation teachings is that life is precious even when it's brief. Yes, that's true. And another part of the book that I thought was interesting about getting into the dharma and sort of the teaching of the Buddha was the story of the Buddha's birth. Yes. Yes, there's some, some fun, fun with that. that. Yes, the the reimagining of the story of the Buddha's birth as told from the point of view of the Buddha's mother. And again, I want to preface this by saying that I'm not in any way suggesting that this is historically accurate. Um, it's a rewriting of a myth, and it's a reimagining of a myth. And so, the myth that has been passed down, in my view, was a myth that was created and passed along by men, and as I've mentioned, um, often male monastics over the years, about how the Buddha emerged from the side of the woman and slipped out of the woman's side and immediately took three steps and held up his hand, this little toddler, and said, I I am the world-honored one. And I thought, it was likely a little different than that. <laughs> and I retold the story from the point of view of the mother with the heartbreak and, and pain. And of course, in the, in the classic myth of the Buddha, the, the Buddha's mother does die shortly after his birth. And so um, I, I re-envision this as the story of a, a breach birth and an a emergency, you know, ancient world equivalent of a C-section. And, uh, and all of the pain and the loss and the blood and the um, and the love between the mother and the baby. So uh, that was a, a powerful one to write and felt a little heretical as I was writing it. And I've gotten really wonderful responses from women around that revisioning. And the, the way I interwove that with my own uh, birth story, the story of the birth of my son, um, really as a wanting to... Uh, to re-inhabit the myth. Right, and, and do and it do in it a way, way that, that again, again demonstrates, demonstrates that good, good things, things don't, don't always look perfect. perfect. They, they don't, don't always, always and, and, and you, you, you also write about, about, you know, they're, they're messy, messy and, and there's, there's 
body fluids involved, and there could be sad and painful aspects. Exactly. And to really write the myth in the way that, that honored this, that, that this, with the Buddha is the symbol for our own human capacity for awakening, that it emerges from and is intimately entwined with the, the messiness, the inherent messiness and imperfection of our human lives, and that it doesn't arrive in, arise in spite of that, but almost because of that. There's this image in the teachings that the lotus flowers need mud in order to blossom. That's where they grow, is in swamps and mud. And, uh, and that that's the case in our own lives as well, that often our, our deepest awakenings come from, you know, the places where we've made mistakes. Yeah, I just had this vision of you trying to do yoga when your son was, you know, two weeks old and you're just trying to like do this pose. You have about five minutes tops and just how you grappled with, okay, this is a different, again, a different form, a different version, a less than perfect practice, but you were, you were just making it happen and, and, you know, accepting that. And I think that's important because I, because I do think a lot of people who are trying to meditate do think it's about perfection and doing it the right way. Exactly. And that also it's not worth doing, you know, not worth doing yoga unless we have an hour and a half to do it and we can do all these advanced poses and that somehow the performance is what it's about. So that image of doing it in the five minutes, you know, while the baby is happily, happily playing with their mobile uh, is really an image of bringing it into the middle of our lives. How do we do it in the middle how do we do it um, while things are happening? And that's not to downplay, you know, how wonderful it is to have time to go off on a retreat or to seclude yourself for a little while and just dive into the formal practice. But where it really comes alive is, is where it meets our lives. And, and how do we find the form of practice for us that most supports us in our life, which may not look like just like your yoga pose may not look like the person on the next mat, the way that you practice in your life may not look like anybody else's. And how do you, how do you find that way um, that works for you to remember to, to be present, to be embodied, to be kind as much as you can be in the midst of everything that's going on? I'm wondering if you could say just something as we get towards the end here of how your practice has changed now or how things are different with your son passing his 18th birthday and entering a different stage. Well, it's interesting. All of these things that that seem on paper like they're going to be like radical shifts actually turn out in experience to be uh, more of a continuum. So the process of a child, or at least in my case, the process of a child turning 18, going off to college, um, 
was not the abrupt shift that I expected. It was part of a continuum that started when he was an infant. And each transformation, you know, the each time the child gets a little bigger, you lose the earlier version of that being. And so it's a constant opening to what's new and a loss of what came before. And they're both wonderful because as a, as the Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh says, without impermanence, your child couldn't grow up. So the process of the growing up is in fact a, a, a letting go of what came before. So that said, there hasn't been, I, I wouldn't say a radical shift in my practice. It was already, had gone through so many shifts. There's the, the way you're practicing with an infant and the way you're practicing with a toddler. And then there's when they're in school, but they're coming home for the afternoon, and then they're a teenager, and suddenly they're out with their friends until 11 o'clock, and you have a lot more time than you used to have. So uh, I wouldn't say that there's a, a radical shift now. I would say that my practice is an ongoing exploration, and at this phase, it's an exploration of uh, of uh, What's next? You know, opening, opening the doors, you know, cleaning out the closets, going through the accumulated papers and photos of 18 years and starting to clear some space and a clearing of a space to see what wants to emerge. Uh, but of course, you know, my son is still home quite a bit. In fact, he's coming home from his freshman year this afternoon. I'll be picking them up from the airport or bus in just a few hours. Yeah, they do come back, don't they? <laughs> they come back. They they come back. Um, and my stepdaughter actually is, um, is who has been living here for the last year is going to be leaving in a few weeks and and moving out to do a, a new program somewhere else. So uh, an educational program somewhere else. So again, the coming and the going. The fluidity. Yeah. So this might be a good time to ask you about whether there is anything, what, what might be next coming as you're cleaning closets and all that professionally. Do you have some interest in another subject or any other ideas? Well, one of the the amazing things about a, a book coming out, especially one that you've worked on for so long, is that for me, there's a feeling of the creative pipeline suddenly being open. And so, so for a long time, I had this feeling that, well, I can't really write anything else until this one is done. And now that this one is out, there's a flood of ideas and possibilities. And... I'm going to just wait and give a little space and see which one becomes most alive for me. I have two or three things that I'm I'm percolating. And uh, what I've found about creative ideas is if I talk about them too soon, they lose their potency. It's almost like something in my psyche, if I talk about something that I'm writing or about to write, imagines that I've already written it. <laughs> and so it doesn't start sending the juice in that direction. So when I'm in this phase, I don't talk about what the ideas are. I just let them percolate and maybe start taking some notes and don't put any pressure on the situation um, and start to, to wait and see what really, what really uh, comes alive. 
and uh, uh, I have a lot of teaching work right now, a lot of mentoring work that I'm doing, and so that's keeping me busy professionally. And I'm leaving that space for the writing um, while I'm teaching the the I'm teaching mindfulness meditation and mentoring in a mindfulness meditation teacher training program. I'm keeping the space open to see what's going to be the creative spark that's going to catch next. And uh, I know there's going to be one, and I'm excited to see what kind of journey it takes me on. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. (laughs) Yes, well, at this point, having written, I mean, I've written a travel book, a novel, a memoir, and a yoga and meditation book. So I've, I've explored a range of genres, and it'll be interesting to see what what the next one is Uh, it's always fun to try something new yeah new project great well thank you so much for being on the show today i really appreciated it well thank you so much elizabeth i really appreciate your questions and the thoughtfulness with which you engaged with the the book Um, If people are interested in uh, other things that I've written or in classes or workshops that I'm teaching, they can always just visit my website, which is anncushman.com, and there'll be a list of upcoming retreats that I'm leading, and including some writing and meditation, um, non-residential retreats at Spirit Rock. And also, you can see whatever whatever I'm working on next will show up there. And it's an excellent read. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's it's a a fun and and entertaining and deep and meaningful. It has a lot uh, a lot in there for readers. So um, I recommend that. And we'll put the link to the to your website on the blog post for listeners. Great. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for your time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.